Hey everyone, and welcome to the Capitalize for Kids podcast, where we interview Canadian leaders in business and philanthropy. This week on the show, we speak with Michelle Romano. Michelle is a Canadian tech entrepreneur, a dragon, a venture capitalist, and most importantly, a Queen's alumni. We spoke to her at the Toronto headquarters of her latest venture, ClearBank, which is transforming how startups access growth capital. We really enjoyed speaking with Michelle and thought that this conversation offered some unique insights that we don't normally hear from her. So we hope you all enjoy this episode as much as we did. It might make sense to start where it perhaps began at Queens. Yeah. Uh, it's a point where we're also a uh, Queens alum here um, and, and wanted to hear about your experience at Queens. And I know that you studied engineering, right? Yeah. Yeah. So um, grew up in Calgary, uh, got to Queens studying engineering and by second year, I figured out that I was going to be much better at building businesses than building bridges. And so the first thing I did as, you know, a 19-year-old and an environmentalist is wanted to create my own little business uh, that was totally sustainable. Um, and so I built a little coffee shop on campus that had zero footprint called The Tea Room. And it's still there 11 years later, but it was my very first chance um, to really get to run a business, to catch that entrepreneurial bug. Uh, and then things really started rolling from there. How did you know in your second year, like I feel like most students are so focused on schoolwork and social life and yeah. between that have no time for self-reflection. How did you manage to find that time to understand I want to build businesses as opposed to bridges? You know, I don't think there was like a, a moment. I think that I just always knew that if you wanted to, you know, affect a change, you have to go build it yourself. And so there's actually, I think school is the best time to be doing that. You have, you know, you have a bunch of people there, you have fixed resources, you have free office space, like you can really get a lot done. And it was really there that I met, um, you know, two guys in engineering, um, Anatoly and Ryan, we worked together for a decade after that. And what happened is that we spent all of our time brainstorming what the next million dollar idea was. Like we were still doing our courses and getting good marks, but um, you know, we went through hundreds of different ideas until finally deciding on pursuing caviar and fish farming. We figured out that a worldwide supply of sturgeon caviar of all things was down by 95%. We had overfished the Caspian Sea. And so, you know, cold called Thomas Keller from the university library asked why he didn't have caviar on his menu. And when he turned around and asked if I had any, I was like, oh my goodness, if we can produce this product, we'll have a captive market. And so, you know, spent our, my last year of school was, um, I did an MBA right after engineering. Uh, spent all my time building this business plan, did a bunch of business plan competitions. And so I think we won about five of them, graduated with like 120 grand. But the craziest part is that we actually moved out to New Brunswick to go build a fishery from scratch. So that's everything it sounds like. Boats, fishermen, my hands knee deep in fish, the whole nine yards. And um, managed to build it, sell our product to a bunch of the high-end restaurants. And it was, a, it was a great little business until we had a massive recession in 2008. And so that was you know, my, my first venture out of school where I really got to figure that out. And what, what did you learn from, from that failure? Because it sounds like you, you developed it from soup to nuts. Yeah. And the failure was caused by the recession. But so what was the biggest takeaway from, from that? Well, the biggest takeaway was that I needed to stop planning and to just get going. You know, I had spent a year and a half in business school writing one of these perfect 80-page business plans and these 20-tab Excel models. And as soon as we got out there, we were figuring out and iterating very, very quickly on what needed to be done. 
um, but I didn't learn, that didn't come from classroom and prep work, that actually came from doing. And so I think, you know, my advice is if you want to become an entrepreneur, you got to start starting businesses. There's, this is not a field you study. This is a field that you execute and, and that's what has to teach you. And so that doesn't mean you don't do great research when you're entering into a space and really understand you know, what your advantage could be relative to others. Uh, but it does mean you start executing and experimenting really fast because the market will always tell you um, what they want much better than others. And so that, you know, we, we really kept that framework moving out of that. The recession, um, got so bad, I went to become the director of strategy at a big retailer. It was there that I saw e-commerce blow up. And you know, a year later, the three of us got back together at a coffee shop and said, well, we got to start an e-commerce company. And the story of Bytopia is actually pretty crazy because we were something like you know, the 15th competitor in the space. We didn't raise any money for almost five years um, and became one of the fastest growing Canadian companies, grew really fast through low cost customer acquisition and deals with big national brands. And then eventually acquired 10 of our competitors along the way. So we were the ones that bought, you know, shop.ca that had raised $62 million, bought Wagjag from Torstar. And so have now rolled up all these e-commerce sites. Um, and hopefully that company will go public in the next couple of years, which is, uh, which is pretty exciting. And when you have that coffee with, with Ryan and Anatoly, were they also on that same wavelength of we got to start an e-commerce or did you guys once again come to the, to the forefront with million dollar ideas and then you just settled on that? We were, I mean, we were, I think that one of the, the key traits of being an entrepreneur is just this constant curiosity about new ideas. Like, you know, my mother's so funny. She's always like, well, you know, what if you don't have another idea? And I'm like, mom, I have like 400 ideas. Like, <laughs> we have so many ideas. And, and when we go for drinks for fun and when we're chatting about things, we're always chatting about what's emerging and like, is this interesting? And so I think that, you know, there's never ever been one idea throughout this whole process. Even as you're building an e-commerce company, you're looking at how to differentiate and trying different verticals and trying different things. I mean, um, you know, we were, we were running, um, snap saves and we had an enormous, sorry, we were running Bytopia. We had an enormous amount of consumers and we didn't have deals on groceries, which is a huge category that customers are looking for discounts on because everyone has to eat. And consumer packaged goods have enormous budgets to do, you know, old school couponing where they mail literally in the U.S. 100 billion pieces of paper to people's homes every year. Um, but to get that product right, uh, took, you know, three or four tries until we finally got what became Snap Saves? It was acquired by Groupon um, in 2014. It was my first big exit as an entrepreneur and a total pivotal point in my career. But it happened, you know, with years of iteration to get there, not just kind of waking up one day and having the idea to actually do it. And during this entire time, uh, how it's how important was your your, your partnership with Anatoly and, and Brian? Like you mentioned that you know, they, they were the ones who kind of changed you uh, during your time at Queens and, and I'm sure you know you to them as well. Yeah. Um, how important was that partnership to you? Enormously. I think that um, you can do great things. You can't do them by yourself. Soul founders are uh, less statistically successful than co-founders. And it's because there's a lot of things. You need different skill sets on the team. Misery loves company. This is an exhausting, tireless, thankless job, often for years, <laughs> as you are experimenting. There is, this is, you know, being an entrepreneur is a job where 80% of things are going wrong and 20% of things are going right. And if you could imagine, 
being in other lines of work, you know, being a tax accountant and filing 80% of your clients' taxes wrong. Like that would be unacceptable and certainly unfulfilling. And so, you know, what makes a difference is that when you get those 20% wins, they can be so big that it can carry you forward. But it takes a lot. And so I think that's why you need you need co-founders. You need other people around you that are rooting for the same mission. I am fundamentally a different person today um, because I met Anatoly in undergrad. He was the one that taught me about risk, got me really comfortable. Um, and, and we had, he didn't, sorry, that's not right. He was the one that taught me about, um, you know, taking risks and being able to sell anything. Like, I remember the first time he was like, he was like, I was like, they just said no to us. And he's like, no, no, no. What they said is they don't understand. And he just like kept pitching, um, which was a lifelong skill. And, um, and you know, they've, they've been incredible to work with. I still, I still, um, I still work with Anatoly. I started uh, ClearBank with Andrew. And so I've worked with multiple different people. Um, but that co-founder relationship is so important. And did it, did it help you also realize uh, like you just mentioned, uh, that, that lifelong skill of, of, of selling, so to speak. Um, did you not have that previously? And then he brought it out in you, and then he helped you build that skill? Like how did? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, I'm one of the believers that you can teach almost anything. Like people have to want something enough. And there is, there is some natural talent, but 10,000 hours in, in honing a skill set will make up for a lot. And so it was, uh, yeah, I mean, no one teaches you how to sell. Some people have it naturally, but, you know, learning to hear the word no and then, you know, keeping going after that is a pretty core skill because there's a lot of ways to win and to get around an argument and to, to really be flexible. Um, but no, I, I had to learn that. And that was one of the, the first things that he taught me. If I was interviewing him right now, uh, what would he say that you taught him? Um, risk management. That you cannot bet the farm on absolutely everything or else you will have no farm left. <laughs> uh, and there are a few things where you always have to bet the farm. That's, it, to, to say that I operate in a world with no risk is crazy, and that's certainly not true. But I'm, I'm very particular about the type of risk we take on and when we take them on. And, you know, a little bit what our plan B was uh, at most of the time. How did you develop that skill? I don't know. I think that was that was a little bit more innate. I think, um, you know, my my dad was in the oil and gas industry. And so this is an industry as well that deals with an enormous amount of risk. Right. You know, one in every 10 um, times you dig into the earth, you don't find anything. So you have a 10 percent success rate. And so thinking about how to mitigate that with massive capital costs, uh, was uh, was always very interesting. So so you you go and you um, exit. You mentioned before to take it back. You you exited from Snapsave. Yeah, Snapsave's got sold to Groupon, um, and then we, you know, stayed with Groupon, integrating the product, moved our entire team to Chicago, um, and then I joined the cast of Dragons Den, which was how, really, how long after? Uh, probably I started uh, fairly short after, like a couple couple months, I think. So so did you have like a like. I think that when people from the outside look at entrepreneurs and when they sell a company, yeah. they're like, oh, like what a dream that would be to just like, now I can stop. Yeah. You know, but it, it, from an entrepreneur standpoint, there's no stop. So like, what was that period like from you sell the company to then like, were you looking for the next thing? Like, what was that like? Yeah. So, I mean, we sold the company to Groupon and we actually, we went, all of us went to Groupon to integrate the product there. So the team came with the product. Um, and then after that, you're certainly looking at what's going to be your next um, 
big idea. I mean, I think, you know, there, this is one of the attractive parts of this profession is that you can have an outcome and an exit where you can choose whether you want to work again. And some people actually choose not to work again. And I've had friends that have sold companies and, you know, gone to Thailand and taken two years to do totally different things, which I think is, is really cool and a very fascinating way to live your life. I think for me, um, it was really interesting to get to start to do Dragon's Den and to be a part of that. Um, and, you know, I, I, I really, really care about enabling the next generation of entrepreneurs. I mean, if there is one cause that matters to me the most, because I think that is where you can truly enable, you know, um, the, the trailblazers that will change the world. Because entrepreneurship has a far higher likelihood of building real world solutions than almost any other system we have in the world. I mean, I look at, you know, the, the trillions of dollars that, that global governments have spent on climate change, and it's one entrepreneur that invented an electric car that everyone wants to drive and an electric truck that will probably have the biggest impact um, that we're going to see. And I think that that's, that's why all this risk is worth it. That's why doing this, despite the fact that it's so hard, is totally, totally worth it. Um, so as I was leaving Groupon, I, um, you know, I joined the cast of Dragon's Den. I started looking and, and you, a lot distills because we see something like, you know, 250 pitches in 17 days when we film the show. And there was so many deals, um, that equity just didn't make sense, right? You know, you've got a father and a son team. They're making these great cell phone cases. They make them for 10 bucks. They sell them for 50 bucks. And, you know, cost them $10 in ad spend. So it's like a good, solid business. And they're on the show looking for 100 grand for 25% of their company. And, you know, I'm not, you know, that company's probably not going to exit. And so you're just like, like, but this company really doesn't need the 100 grand. So why don't, why don't I do like a revenue share deal? You know, I'll give you the 100 grand. You pay me 5% of your revenue until you pay me back, plus call it 6%. So I give you 100 grand. They pay me back $106,000, and then that's it. They own their whole company. And the entrepreneurs are like, that's a great deal. I get to keep my company. And I'm like, well, it's a great deal. I got, you know, some return on my capital. Um, and so that eventually ended up becoming what we built at ClearBank. Because today in the market, 40% of the dollars that are going into companies, the venture capital dollars that are going to companies, are getting spent on a Facebook or a Google ad, <laughs> which should be repeatable ad spend that you should not need to give up a portion of your company um, to get capital for. And so we've given entrepreneurs more than $150 million this year. That's bigger than most Canadian VC funds <laughs> um, to, uh, to expand their business, um, largely through, uh, through online channels and doing it in a way that's totally non-dilutive so we don't take equity. Um, that's, you know, these really simple rev share deals. To take that back to what you said before about what drives you. Yeah. Um, this new uh, initiative of yours, ClearBank, or is, is that what it drive, like what's driving you to do that is the ability to um, help entrepreneurs and, and grow that next uh, wave 100%. of change? hundred percent. Like there is, you know, you cannot, you cannot help entrepreneurs at their core without solving some of the big capital challenges you've had. And I mean, you can see it, right? 2% of venture capital dollars goes to females. 
you know, we're eight times higher than industry average because we look at data. We don't, you know, do meetings with people. Um, there is there's lots and lots and lots of problems with the existing model of venture capital. And, and not all of it's bad. You know, true risk capital should exactly be venture capital when we are working at, you know, solving a new disease or building some crazy pieces of AI. But if you're needing to grow your business through marketing spend, there are much better sources of capital um, than that. And so I think that, you know, the entrepreneurs that we've enabled, um, we've, over, we've enabled over 500 companies. Um, and so I think that's the type of impact I cared about. This was not just about helping, you know, 10 or 20 companies really make it. This was, you know, trying to build a model that would apply, uh, you know, to a far bigger audience than that. And some of the things they're doing is, is pretty incredible. And what, so what are some of your favorite, your favorite stories? Um, oh my God, there's, there's so many, you know, there was a guy that worked at a vineyard, figured out that like single serve wine doesn't exist. And so he made this like vial where you could try different kinds of wine and started this subscription box called Vine Box. Um, and every month you get to try a bunch of different wines. He's totally changed, um, that industry and, you know, user capital was like, okay, I got to raise a series A, you know, at a way bigger round size um, than I should have been able to. And yeah. so uh, you, get, you get some of the stories uh, that are really cool like that. And can you talk a bit about your uh, partnership with Richard Branson on the Canadian entrepreneurship? Yeah, so um, I started a non-for-profit with Ruma Bose uh, a couple of years ago called the Canadian Entrepreneurship Initiative that was all about um, exactly this, enabling more online entrepreneurs and Richard agreed to be the entrepreneur in residence because he, he really sees the value in what you can create um, when you build up entrepreneurship. And so it's, you know, I, I, we did this big study and one of the things is like when you ask Canadians to name, you know, five great entrepreneurs, the first thing that happens is 50% of Canadians can't name an entrepreneur. And then the other 50% um, name people like Alexander Graham Bell and John Molson and like half the list were people that were dead. <laughs> um, and there were certainly no women in the top 10. And so I think, uh, I really believe that you can't be what you can't see. And there are so many great examples um, of, you know, entrepreneurs that have built incredible businesses in Canada. And it's, it's really about sharing those stories uh, and having the right capital to enable the next generation of entrepreneurs. That's interesting. I like that way you put that. You can't be what you can't see. There is some of that. There is some of that. It, it, there is a huge part in having role models and mentors um, that, um, that allow you to find that. Not to make a, a leading question out of this, but I guess like, so one thing that fascinates me about you uh, is that you started in the tech space, um, and now you're you're in the, the quasi financial services space. Call it right. Well, it's even crazier than that. I mean, if you really want to take an objective look at my career lens, I've gone from engineering to coffee shop <laughs> to fishmonger to e-commerce to coupon queen to you know media and television with Dragon's Den um, to finance and capital markets. That's correct. It it is like. You know, no one says plan your career this way and just jump industries every two years and see what happens. <laughs> and and I, I like the fact that so and maybe it's because of of the the step before getting into finance, which was the media and television. But uh, this space typically brings uh, personalities that are perhaps a bit more uh, opaque and put a premium on privacy. Yeah. 
you seem to go the other way and you're very transparent to the point where I know that like on your Instagram, you'll share stories of like a failure and you'll, yeah. you're super vulnerable, which I appreciate. Yeah. And, and I wonder, is, does that, what drives that? Why do you do that? Yeah. You know, I think it's a, it's a good, um, it's a, it's a, it's a good observation and it's hard. And the more successful you get, the harder it is to be vulnerable and the harder it is um, because you feel like, first of all, you're further away from your earlier days. It's just like a, a time recency thing. Um, and uh, in life, and life changes a bit. And so I think um, I have never liked, I don't know, speakers and books and people that have pretended it was easy. I don't think that's the right message because I've never actually met someone who's being real and genuine and truthful where it was easy. <laughs> this is like building a business is amongst one of the hardest things you can possibly do. Like you have no right to win. You are fighting every single competitor. Everyone has more resources and more capital than you. And the only thing you have is speed and creativity. And so I think I think it is really important to share some of that story. Share some of at least my stories because again, you can't see what you can't be. And I think people are forgetting how tough they are. I mean, like, you know, we, we live on a piece of land that was, we roamed around in horses, like in the middle of this winter. It's just, it's like, we have so much toughness as human beings to, to fight and to live another day. And there was a lot of days in my career where I'm like, I just need to live another day. I just need to come to the office tomorrow and do whatever I can to save this business because there are lots of trying times. And so I think, you know, whenever I have a bad day, I do try and share that because I'd like to remind people that like to this day, I still work really hard on projects and things I want and ideas. And sometimes they just fall on the floor like a glass of milk and they're just nothing. And there's got to be like some pressure to like, I mean, the more successful you get, the more pressure there is to be successful. Yeah. And like, how do you, so how do you deal with that? Yeah, I think that you have to ultimately create your own expectations um, because the, the world produces a lot of expectations uh, for you sometimes. And so I always think that, you know, people talk a lot about, um, you know, that, that females in business have a harder time. But I think one of the advantages they don't talk about is females are perpetually underestimated. <laughs> And sometimes it's actually extraordinary to be underestimated because people are, you know, you don't have to live with this just extraordinary expectation that the next thing you produce needs to be incredible. Um, and so I, I've, I've always thought of that as a great advantage. But ultimately, like, you have to sing your own song and you have to know which profession I'm in. I'm in the profession where 80% of the ideas I try will still fail. But I know that every time, and I don't even call them new businesses, I call them just new projects. We just like do a project, start something, see if it works, try, you know, run some ads. And, and I'm quite serious when I say these are projects. Like we build full pieces of software, we like get you know, working prototypes, we do all sorts of things um, to really do that. But I also know that the only way that entrepreneurs are successful is just, you know, just by trying so many things. And then it's just a game of stats, and at one point you're, you, you get lucky, and then it's serendipity. You have to be smart enough to know you're getting lucky. And, and then so you double everything down on that. Is that when you shift? So are you just kind of like trying, 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 project, 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 and then like you see one gaining traction, and is all your are all your resources going into that once it gains traction? Is that the playbook? 
There's a little bit of that, but then to remain innovative, you need to keep doing experiments. So, you know, like here we are at ClearBank, we're three years in, we obviously have a product that's getting incredible traction right now, but you know, I know that markets shift and things change. And so, you know, we have a couple people on our team and their only job is to run experiments. It's to try different verticals, to go after different countries, and they operate largely outside of the core of the organization. Um, and they get their own budget to try things, and their own tech team to try things. And I think this is as easy as like, you know, kind of one sales ops person and one technical person can build a lot of stuff. And they're just putting things in the market sometimes under different names, sometimes under the same thing, sometimes in all sorts of creative ways, and seeing what works. Because there is, this is, the, this is one of the, the dichotomies of being, being a great entrepreneur. You gotta try a bunch of things, find one thing that's working, really get that to scale, but then never stop that process of innovating. Because ultimately, you have to be the one that disrupts yourself. Because if you let the market do it, uh, you're gonna be dead in the water. I like that. Um, I want to go back to something you said about creating your own expectations. Yeah. How, 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 do you, how does Michelle Romano do that? Do you sit down and have a goal list and then you're checking those off as you achieve them? You know, I was scared to create goals for probably the first, I don't know, six or seven years of my career. And I know that's not, I'm just being totally honest with you, that is not like conventionally people say, like, oh, I had a list and I checked it off. And, um, I think in the back of my mind, I was always very ambitious and I knew I wanted to build a business. Um, but I just was so scared of being unsuccessful. It was like, you know, holy shit, if I wrote this down, it might not happen. Um, and then I think I, I become a lot better at saying, here are these things that I want to accomplish this year. And then sharing those with the people that are, that are closest with me. And so you can kind of cheer each other on and, and really help each other get there. And I, I'd say that's a very small list of people because um, you, know, you just don't have that many people that you're that close with that can, that can really get it. Are they helpful in, in letting you know, hey, Michelle, like you, you, you're, you're off balance right now, like you're off kilter, like you haven't spent any time with your family, or I don't know if some of these people are your family, yeah. but are they good at keeping you balanced as well? Yeah, I think it's keeping you focused and grounded on what's important. Because the part of being an entrepreneur is it's just such a roller coaster because the highs are so high and the lows are so low. Um, and we've gotten to this point almost in society where like somehow weirdly, I don't know how this happened, but the expectation has become you should feel the same every day. And like, I just don't think there's anything further from the truth. Like never throughout history were you supposed to feel the same amount of you know, happiness or pain or joy in the same day. It just, I don't, I don't think that's how kind of life plays out. And so that being said, these giant like sinusoidal swings are also, you know, very unhealthy. And so I think um, there are times where you get, you know, some things go well and you probably get, you know, too cocky and you need that friends and that close group of circle to pull you back and to remind you of, you know, your own weaknesses and that, you know, winter's probably coming here at some point. And then at that low point, you also need, um, you know, you need those people to, to remind you that, that you still got it. Uh, and, you know, you just gotta, you just gotta keep trying. From 23 to 33, you've, you've probably done more than most people do in a lifetime. And that's just the truth. <laughs> um, <laughs> if, 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 if you could, <laughs> I, had, I had a lot of sleepless nights, <laughs> and I had a lot of days where, like, like 
that's a, that's a really great compliment, but just so everyone knows, like I did not, 80% of the time of that, I did not feel like I was succeeding. I felt like I was failing. Like I felt like I couldn't go to the cocktail party with my friends and talk about what I was doing because it was just such a show. <laughs> I was like, I can't even explain how bad this is. Uh, and then nor do I want to because this is like my tiny bit of social, you know, sanity. But everyone has such interest in you know, growing businesses is a disruption. They, uh, they don't want to, anyway, they love what, they love what, no, they love what's different, right? And you're doing yeah. something that's very different. Yeah. You know, you're, you didn't go out and get a job in an engineering firm and then do that for a career. Like you're doing something very different. Yeah. Um, but I guess like, how do you look at, you know, you in 10 years, you in 20 years, like you said, that you didn't write down goals for the first six, seven years of your career. Like yeah. I'm assuming now you are. Yeah. And like, how do you look at what kind of, like impact you're leaving, legacy, like yeah. next 10, 20 years, like, or are you even thinking about that? You know, I think the other thing is like, and, they, and they've done lots of research about this, like one of the things that keeps humans incredibly happy is this like, is, is being grateful. And there's nothing that produces that more in me when I'm like, like I, I spent from kindergarten to grade six living in Regina, Saskatchewan. Like I then moved to Calgary and I thought, you know, my life would be amazing if I got to run a little business and be an entrepreneur. Like, I never expected my life to play out this way. You know what I mean? I never expected to, to be on a TV show or to have the type of impact. But I think, you know, you, as things happen, you, you upgrade your ambitions is maybe the way that I would look at it. And you, you see that you can um, have an impact. And so I don't, I don't know what that looks like. I think for now, I am very focused on how do we enable more entrepreneurs and how do we do that in you know, a systematic, scalable, meaningful way that will have impact for a long time. And then I think about um, you know, how, how governments think about things like that. Um, but like at the end of the day, I, I've just spent a career looking for opportunity. And everyone tells young people that they need these like like I, I call it like the, the bullshit career advice. You know what I mean? Like you need to stay in a job for two years to really learn it and you need to like stick to an industry. And certainly like that, you can do that. But if you also just figure out how to look for opportunity and then move on that quickly, that's, that's all I've done, right? I've just looked at what, what, what does the world need at this point now? And if you look at any of the points in history, I mean, it was people that, you know, sometimes we word as they were at the right place at the right time, which is kind of true, but they also had a little bit to do in positioning themselves at the right place at the right time. And, you know, we don't know how industries are going to shape out, but we largely know the big pieces of technology that are going to have a huge impact going forward. Um, and we're still scratching the surface of what we're doing with mobile phones and location and AI and all these different things. Like, so it's, it's um, I think it's always about that. It's like, if you want to spend your career looking for opportunity, that, and that's the other thing, I'm never bored. I deal with, I think, the most positive parts of life because we deal with, like, all I do is get to think and dream about creating what could be the next chapter as opposed to, you know, professions that have to look at what could go wrong and how to totally mitigate risk and all the things that maybe have gone wrong. This is, you know, let's pretend everything it, that could go right and what would we build into that? It, it sounds like you're almost taking your career from the perspective of like an author. Yeah. <laughs> you're actually writing it versus letting it be written for you. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. I, I, it's a good, it's a good point. 
And um, you do have to, it's, it's the same thing. You, you have to dictate the own expectations you have of yourself and, uh, and write your own book. I love that. I think that's uh, an awesome place to end. Uh, you are incredible. Thank, Thank you. you. And that was our episode with Michelle Romano. This episode was produced by Eugene McCashew, and I'm your host, Evan Sequera. If you like this episode, please subscribe, like it, share it. We really appreciate all the support. For more information on Capitalize for Kids and the work that we do to improve the lives of children in Canada, please feel free to visit our website at www.capitalizeforkids.org. Tune in next time to a conversation with someone who co-founded a business with Elon Musk and who is now a CEO of GMP Capital, Harris Fricker.